Hey, I'm Tyler Olson. The show is Money Mediator. Our emotions can have a big impact on our financial decisions. The goal here is to insert an objective view into the process, a mediator between you and your money. Today, we're applying this to the taking on and paying off of student debt. Our episode is entitled, Four Steps Medical Students Should Take to Eliminate Their Student Debt. What emotions can get in the way of these decisions? And what practical steps can you take to make responsible decisions to pay this debt off? Today, I've asked Dr. Rangarajan to uh, join me. She's a member of the clinical faculty at the University of Michigan Medical Center. Uh, she's a geriatrician and hospitalist and approximately two and a half years out of training. Um, if you want to follow her on Twitter, her Twitter handle is at Somia underscore go blue. That's at S-O-U-M-Y-A underscore G-O-B-L-U-E. We wanted to talk with Somia today because when she got out of training, she started with, out, with over $400,000 in student debt, and now she is down to 180000 in student debt. Thank you so much for joining us today, Somia. Uh, you're welcome, and I look forward to chatting with you. Now, there's there's uh, lots of things that we could discuss with regard to student loans, uh, but we're going to focus on four steps that medical students can take to eliminate their student debt. And those steps are knowing your plan, advocacy, location, and financial planning opportunities. Now, if you want to skip to one of these topics specifically, you can go to the show notes where we will have put the time code in for each section. Now, please note that nothing discussed in this episode of Money Mediator should be construed as investment advice. So, um, Somia, before we get into the four steps, would you mind sharing your educational and career background to help us lay the groundwork for these four steps we're going to discuss? Sure. Um, so I actually grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, I, uh, much against the advice of my very big Ohio State and Notre Dame fan teachers, I ended up at the University of Michigan for college. Uh, I was kind of branded with the scarlet letter A as a traitor <laughs> on the sports side uh, when I came to Michigan. But um, I uh, was at Michigan for undergrad. I uh, graduated in the class of 2006. Um, and uh, in undergrad, I, w- I was in state. My uh, my family had moved to Michigan um, by the, before, just before I started college. So, um, so basically, I was able to go debt free in college, I um, I had some help from family. I uh, was working some part time jobs, work study, those kind of things. So I was able to keep the bill down, and I actually also had some scholarships um, for my senior year of high school. So um, so all of that together, I came out of Michigan debt free. Um, with a bachelor's political science and biology. Uh, didn't really know at that point what I wanted to do. Wasn't really convinced I wanted to go to medical school at that point, um, ironically. So um, so I actually went straight into grad school in public policy. Um, uh, so I got a master's of public policy. Um, the policy has always kind of been my passion and my area of interest. And so uh, in 2006, I actually headed off to Harvard um, for their master's and public policy program. Um, For that, uh, it was a two-year program. I took probably around $50,000 in student loans. So um, it was a a good amount, um, but um, basically um, I thought 
I was going to head into a career in public service, maybe work for the government. Um, I had done some internships kind of off and on uh, related to government service. And then I graduated in 2008. (laughs) And I think most people here know what happened in 2008. So kind of similar to what's happening right now. But uh, but we had a big uh, financial crash in 2008, just around the time I was graduating from grad school for my master's program. And I had a really hard time finding a job uh, that I really wanted to do. Um, I had applied for some healthcare consulting companies, you know, maybe just kind of still wanting an arm in healthcare and science, but um, didn't really find that was a lifestyle I wanted. Um, And so I decided to come back home. Um, and uh, back to Ann Arbor, Michigan. And and then I did fortunately get a really great research job um, it, with a physician. She's a radiation oncologist who uh, does some health policy as well. She also has a PhD um, in, in policy as well as an MD and um, really enjoyed that experience. And I think the combination of having such a hard time finding a job during the financial crisis and and really loving the work I was doing, um, you know, in uh, medicine and, and public policy in that juncture uh, convinced me I wanted to go back to medical school. So um, so after a year of doing this research job and at, during that year, I actually paid off a good amount of my loans, probably about half of my master's loans mm-hmm. that year, about 25,000. Yeah. So about 25,000 I paid off maybe 20 to 25 that year. I, um, I basically decided to go back to medical school and uh, that's kind of when I got sticker shock. Um, You know, the 58K was obviously a decent amount from grad school, but it was nothing like what we were dealing with in medical school. Um, The um, amount of loans I ended up having to take out, as you mentioned, uh, I think it was prior to interest that built up later. It was probably in the high 300s, around 380. Wow. Um, at the time that I entered medical school. So um, it was out of state. Um, and so uh, we'll get to that a little later, but definitely um, out of state and then private medical schools tend to be very, very expensive. So um, so it was definitely a decision of whether it was worth it. Um, you know, knowing um, what I know now, it's really important for people to really think through this before they sign that dotted line uh, to take those loans. Um, I think for me, it was worth it on several levels to go back to medical school. I mean, again, I think the, the job security and medicine was very important to me. I knew no matter how much debt I uh, ended up taking, I knew I kind of had a job at the end of the end of the process and end of the tunnel. And it was a job that would be safe for me um, that, you know, obviously I would always be able to find some type of work. Um, I, I think another thing that played into that is my brother's in the computer industry. He's in tech and um, tech is a lot less, um, I think, you, I, I mean, a lot less safety in the sense of, you know, you don't typically have to stay at the same company for 20 years or 30 years. You know, they they move around a lot mm-hmm. in, in tech. And so I, I didn't really want that. Um, my brother and I are very different personality types. He's much more of an extrovert. I'm not. Um, I'm more of an introvert. And so I wasn't the kind of person who really wanted to try to sell myself, you know, over and over again. And yeah. so um, and so medicine really seemed to make sense that way, because, you know, you can if you find a job you're happy with, usually you could stay 
for a pretty long time. So, um, so that played into it. I think job security, you know, obviously having a, a solid income was important. You know, when you finish medical training, you do uh, end up with a solid income. And so, and um, I just uh, thought the, I'm not a person who likes a lot of uncertainty and chaos in my life. And so, um, and there was a lot of chaos in 2008. And so I was, I just decided this was not uh, something that was really good for my mental health to live with that kind of chaos. And so, um, so again, I thought with all those reasons, I thought that going back to medicine made sense, but I also was projecting five years, 10 years in the future being like, how am I going to pay this down? You know, what kind of sacrifices am I going to make to, to pay this down? I, I live very frugally. Um, you know, I'm, I'm single. I uh, don't have children uh, at the moment. And um, obviously, even though I didn't know that was where I would be for sure, when I started medical school, I kind of had the idea that my finances would take top priority. Um, so I think a lot of people, even when, if they are in a relationship before they go to medical school, you know, a lot of people are thinking ahead, you know, thinking, you know, do I want to have kids if I'm taking on this much debt or do I want to wait? You know, I think those, those things are something you want to talk about with your partner um, early on, you know, because it certainly for my friends who have children, they're a big investment, (laughs) obviously a lot of investment, both in, uh, in money, but also obviously in time and, and, you know, resources, you know, to obviously spend time with your kids and things like that, which may uh, make it more prudent to work part-time, things like that. And so, um, so you always kind of want to think through those things and maybe map out your 10-year future um, before you sign on that level of debt. Um, so, um, so having said that, you know, I do think that medicine is a great career. You know, I'm obviously very happy with what I'm doing now. Um, maybe at the uh, point right now, it's a little more stressful than than usual, but um, but I'm, I I absolutely love love what I do, and so I mean I don't necessarily think that the sticker price should dissuade people from going to medical school, but you clearly need to have a clear plan in place for five years down the road, ten years down the road. Mm. Wow, yeah, you've had a a path that's gone in multiple directions, and uh, mm-hmm. you know the more physicians I speak with, they're I'm sure there is like the, you know, the the person that in even in high school knew they wanted to be a doctor and they just go and write for it. But I see so many people with just lots of variation in how they got to the point where they are now and lots of decisions, lots of things that they are trying to do the best they can. And um, I, I've noticed to a lot of medical students, they you know, they're focused on their studies, but they're also viewing this enormous mountain in front of them and feel powerless. And it causes a great deal of stress, even even now as they as they build up the debt. So um, I appreciate that. I, th- I feel like these these four steps we're going to talk about are things that students can do right now, even if it's hypothetical, but just to kind of create create a, a situation where they they feel like the debt, yeah, it's enormous, but let's create a plan. Let's do things that we can do now to mitigate the stress and to make make a clear path from from point A to point, point B, even if it's ca- going to take some time. Um, 
So let's let's get into these four points. The first one that uh, that I know you wanted to discuss is knowing what kind of plan you need to have. And I know you just touched on that a little bit, but can you expound on what that would involve? Sure, sure. Yeah. So um, I think basically I am a big spreadsheet person. I make spreadsheets for everything. Um, And so just having maybe a pro and con spreadsheet about going to medical school, um, what do you want to do with your medical career? What do you anticipate doing? Um, One thing to keep in mind is some people may have a certain specialty in mind. You know, there's some some of the more sexy specialties out there, like neurosurgery or something like that, that everybody is like, I want to be a neurosurgeon when I grow up, knowing that there is not that very many neurosurgeon spots out there in the country, even if you end up you know, loving surgery and loving neurosurgery, uh, which involves standing on your feet about 12 hours, you know, so these are long surgeries, but, um, and it was definitely not my thing from the beginning, but, um, but basically, you know, you want to have a realistic plan. Um, if you don't get the specialty you love and the one that has a half a million dollar income, what are you going to do? You know, I, you need to kind of have a plan in place for that. And so, yeah, I just kind of already talked about having a five-year plan, 10-year plan, maybe, maybe just make a spreadsheet of where where do you see your life in those years um if you have a partner is your partner going to help out with with finances are they also in medicine um or if not you know can they help out with some of the household things um obviously you have to be very prudent about how you're spending your money um i was lucky that in medical school i lived in towns that were relatively cheap um i so i went to medical school in illinois but i was not in chicago <laughs> Uh, which was actually financially definitely the best thing for me. Um, We were in Urbana, um, where the University of Illinois is our first year, and then Peoria Mm -hmm. uh, the last three years. And I actually had free housing uh, for two years in Peoria. So, um, yeah, which was great. That was a very um, rare perk of being where we were. And um, my living expenses were very minimal. Um, I Even the year that I did have an apartment I was paying for, it was relatively cheap because it's a very cheap city to live in. So, um, so th- thinking about those things, you know, definitely when you're looking at medical schools, you want to think, is it worth living in San Francisco or is it worth living in LA when you're a medical student, you're not really spending a lot of time at the beach or, you know, um, or doing the fun activities, but you're paying exorbitant amounts of money for rent, right. In those cities or Seattle or uh, something like that. And so, um, so just think through those things. If you have multiple acceptances, especially for medical school, really think about the, the cost benefit of living in different places. And so, um, because you do, want to keep those living costs down. You don't need to live in a, you don't probably don't need to buy a condo, especially if you don't have, you know, extra funds available um, for a down payment and things like that. Um, Even apartments, you don't need a the fanciest department out there. Um, I mean, even in my residency and fellowship training, I wasn't living in fancy places because I was barely ever around, right? I'm, I'm at work all the time. So um, so I think those kind of things play into it. Um, so yeah, always consider the cost of living, always kind of have a um, 
kind of a firm spreadsheet type, you know, plan in place, because then you don't let emotions come in and make decisions for you. You know, you're making rational, objective decisions. You know, I, I tend to be a person who doesn't get emotional about things. So, you know, I always... I'm pretty, you know, level-headed in terms of financial decisions, and so, um, and so, I think that's really important to to try to have an objective place where you put that, so you're not just uh, planning out of your gut uh, for things. And so, yeah, because some people may be like, "Hey, I really want to live in." San Francisco for for four years, you know, and I, I mean, UCSF and Stanford are great places, you know, uh, don't get me wrong. But um, but I think that, you know, thinking about the financial aspects of it is important as well. So, yeah, that's a great point. I think I think all of us are. Uh, at risk of just having a, a concept of what life will be like in different cities and what we would like it to be, what kind of apartment we have. And then also like the considerations of where our family is. If we can be closer to them, of course, that's going to be a draw. Uh, but mm-hmm. but putting, putting those decisions into the plan, recognizing that whatever money is spent now is going to be money that doesn't go toward the debt or gets added to the debt. Um, so that's exactly. And, and again, I'm not a parent, but I, I think just speaking to people who plan to be parents or are parents in medical school, I think, as you mentioned, having family around, having those, those types of support systems is very important because especially in your clinical years of medical school, it may be very difficult to find childcare and childcare is very, very expensive in certain cities. Um, I have two nieces and my, my uh, brother lives in Seattle. Childcare is extremely expensive in that city. So, um, and so I think keeping that in mind when you're a medical student that um, having the resources besides things that you have to pay for like like babysitters and, and nannies and things like that would be very helpful so being close to family makes okay. a big difference for that. okay great okay so uh, what I surmise from this part of knowing what kind of plan to have is you mentioned spreadsheets so writing out the numbers and trying to project a five ten year plan and then secondarily giving consideration to the cost of different locations of where you would live and go to school. So like, I know you can, like students can choose which school they want to go to. And when something is within your control, if there's a way you can save money, uh, go ahead and do that. Exactly. Exactly. So if people have multiple acceptances, my recommendation is to really consider the in-state public school. Um, Medical school is different from things like law school. Um, I have a lot of friends who went to law school as well because I was a political science and public policy major. But um, it's here in medical school, the training's the same no matter where you go. You end up learning the same stuff, you know, and so um, it it really does not matter. You don't need the quote unquote fancy degree. Your in-state public school is is going to do a really great job teaching you to be a doctor at a much much lower price so okay great well uh these are these are some great practical steps thank you Mm -hmm. Um, now let's move on to our second point uh, our second main step which is advocacy what do you mean by that Sure. Um, so, yeah, I've mentioned the cost of medical school. Um, the cost has been skyrocketing um, in the last 10 years. Um, so I looked at the data for this. When I entered medical school, um, in-state public schools, I think were around $25,000 a year in tuition. And I out-of-state 
uh, public schools and private schools were maybe around 45,000 on average, mm-hmm. the median. Um, now, it, for entering classes in 2020, um, the um, median cost at in state public schools is around $37,000 a year. And then in out of state or private schools, it's almost sixty four, sixty five thousand dollars a year. It's it's insane wow. uh, how much it's grown. Um, actually, um, so one of the schools in this country, which is the most expensive school in the country, um, their um, tuition for uh, the more expensive out of state tuition is ninety nine thousand, almost a hundred thousand dollars in tuition alone each year, uh, which is insane. Yes, that is insane. Um, and um, so I think this is a big problem. I don't think the education has gotten better to the point that it's worth an extra twenty, forty thousand dollars a year in tuition, whatever. Um, so um, and so I just think I don't know who makes these decisions about the costs. If it's the individual schools, where does that money go? Um, you know, again, as somebody who has a public policy background. I'm always like, where does that money go? Who gets it? You know, is it is it actually providing value to me, you know, as a, as a student? So um, so what I mean by advocacy is really having students look into those things, you know, really look into why are why is my tuition so high? And, you know, if if it is that high, what can I do to get it down? You know, who do I talk to? And and just really try to band together and really, um, you know, I know AM, so AMSA, the American Medical Students Association, Association and some others like AMA, uh, the American Medical Association has a student chapter. So um, there are these leadership advocacy organizations for medical students. And I think um, decreasing the cost of tuition, uh, increasing, uh, you know, student loan options, all those things are really important. Um, And so being able to get out there and actually, you know, Put yourself out there. I think one thing I've noticed about medical students maybe coming from a non-traditional background is they're uh, maybe not willing to rock the boat um, that much. But, but you know, coming from a policy background, nobody's going to hear your voice unless you're out there speaking, you know, unless you're really out there saying, hey, this is a problem. And so um, and so I think that's really needs to be done. Um, I, I think one case in point um, that's semi-related is uh, that the... National Board of Medical Examiners, which ex- um, they do the USMLE testing, uh, the United States Medical Licensing Exam, the f- step one of that exam had become a complete mess. Um, what had been happening is that they have a three-digit score uh, that comes out when after a second year of medical school, you take that test. And that three-digit score determine your entire life. You know, residency programs would use a three-digit score to, to weed out people, you know, they wouldn't even look at the full application. If your score was below a certain threshold, like it, I think the highest scores I've seen are in the 280s or something like that. But um, And I think the passing level, it's actually a test that's supposed to be just a pass-fail test, but they, they had kept releasing the scores and it was turning into uh, a test where they're uh, really judging you based on your USMLE score and not the rest of your application. And so, but anyway, 
say, um, because of advocacy for medical students, and also there was a professor, uh, Brian Carmody at, at Eastern Virginia Medical School, a pediatric nephrologist who really got on board with this, because probably because he was teaching medical students, medical students were complaining about this. But, uh, but they actually, just a couple of months, or actually last month, uh, things have moved really fast since then, but last month they made the step one pass fail. Um, it's going to start, I think, in a couple of years um, because they have to make some changes. But but that's a big step um, because that actually will decrease the cost of medical school because a lot of uh, schools were teaching to the test. Um, you know, they're buying all this test prep material, you know, with your tuition money and things like that. And and uh, now that the test is going to be pass fail, they don't have to do those things. So I think that was actually a really important success story for um for medical student advocacy. So if you do the same thing, you know, if you kind of look at places like where is my tuition money not getting well spent, you know, spending it on a licensing exam, which I can tell you my score from 10 years ago, which was not great. And I actually have a, a piece in Scientific American. And I'll, I'll actually be uh, posting it on Twitter today, but uh, but um, but um, my score was ten years ago. It has had no effect on my future career. I'm you know I'm doing great. I'm board certified, and and um, you know I mean nobody cares <laughs> about what your score was ten years ago. You know once you're an attending physician, and so I think those kind of things that if medical students can actually come out and actually advocate for themselves and say like for right now, actually another interesting thing that's happening is um, there's another portion of the step two, uh, step two of the USMLE series, step two CS, clinical skills, where people have to go to one of five testing centers in the country and take test with standardized patients just to make sure that they have a bedside manner. Um, we've never liked this test. I have never seen a medical student say they enjoy this test. It's a big cost to them. I mean, the test itself is expensive. Plus, you have to a lot of times buy hotels and, and flights, you know, if you have to go to one of these five cities. And they've actually completely canceled that because of everything going on with coronavirus. And they've actually said that this no longer has to be a graduation requirement, which huge. I mean, that that they're not making step two CS a graduation requirement. This just came down a couple of days ago because they understand it's not safe for people to be probably on planes right now uh, to these cities to take this test. And so I think if students advocate, now students are advocating for their own safety, hey, this is not safe for us to, to go take this, then, um, you know, then I think those things are all, it's, I'm starting to see some of the effects of advocacy on some of these organizations. And if we do the same thing with medical students tuition, I feel like we can make a difference, collective difference. And so it just medical students need to organize, they need to say, hey, for our safety or for our, you know, I mean, our financial health, you know, which and our emotional health, which is often tied sometimes tied to how much debt you have, because um, there are articles out there that huge amounts of debt can provoke a lot of anxiety and depression in, in medical students and any students. So, um, and so I think just tying it to that, I think there's, you know, some places are willing to listen and make a difference. I feel like if some medical schools do, some medical schools are starting to make um med school entirely tuition free, but but there's not enough to basically say, hey, this is um, a, um, a tipping point where everybody else is going to do it. You know, there's only been maybe two or three places in New York City um, that are doing that. But I mean, we really need to, to make it a, a massive tipping point so that uh, maybe even if it's not tuition free, significantly reduce the 
intuition for people entering medicine when we need them most. So, okay, that's uh, that, I, those are great points. Thanks for sharing. I, I so it it seems that what you're saying is that as medical students, they're entering this long-standing, enormous institution, and they see things that are not ideal and are not good for anybody um, to not feel like because the institution is so large that there's nothing that they could individually do uh, to, you know, to, to research and to communicate about these things and, and to be open uh, is helpful. And obviously, as you've mentioned, a couple good examples of how this has made some beneficial changes. Exactly, exactly. And, and I mean, a lot of medical, especially the preclinical curriculum is being taught entirely online these days. I mean, that's why when um, our, our University of Michigan announced that all of the students were going to go virtual for the medical students, it really didn't make a difference because they were almost all virtual anyway, right? Oh, so, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, they, but their entire curriculum was almost virtual. Almost nobody actually showed up to class. I mean, that's a big change from when I was in school when we did have lecture halls mostly, but a lot everything has moved online. Do we need to be spending 80, $90,000 a year on tuition for something you're doing entirely off the computer? Probably not. Uh, so, um, so like, I, I think those things just, yeah, thinking through those and yes, I, I do think maybe one student by themselves can't, you know, like be that voice to the administration or the CEO of your, of your university or whatever. Uh, but you can, if you get together, you can make a difference. And we're starting to see that with some of the examples you mentioned. So. Okay, great. Uh, there was one other aspect of advocacy that uh, I think you, you had mentioned to me uh, before when we talked before. Um, I think this is on the individual level in that job security is not as good as it used to be and administrative power is increasing. Are there things that uh, that physicians can do to advocate for themselves and their career that you would suggest? Yes, that's that's definitely an important point. I, I do think um, so. I'm really happy at my institution. I think one of the big things that um, is, is leading to uh, my satisfaction is that um, the Michigan Medical Center is entirely physician run. You know, our our high level staff are all physicians. You know, they uh, they know what, you know what we're dealing with and everything. But uh, but looking at the type place that you're going to be working, you know, when you're an attending and you have a lot of more freedom to choose. Um, is, the, is the president of the organization a physician or is it an MBA? You know, I mean, not nothing against MBAs, but I mean, I, I do feel like hospitals and clinics and medical centers are better run by physicians. And so, and so having a place that's physician run is really important. Um, if I mean, it's, if you do decide to take a job in a place that primarily has kind of a business infrastructure at the top, you know, I mean, you you need to ask yourself, are, do physicians have a voice? You know, are physicians at the table? Are they basically able to make decisions? Like right now, in the midst of coronavirus, obviously, there's a lot of and for surge planning in a lot of places. And, and our uh, physicians almost must be at that table because they're the ones on the front lines. And so um, so just making sure when you're signing up for a job that you see physicians at the table. And, and I think that's really important. Otherwise, you lose a lot of the power and, and it does um, it does affect your job security and it affects, you know, the way that you can live your life and, and backup planning and things like that, so. Okay, 
Yeah, no, that that's a great point too. So, you know, in this section about advocacy, we've talked about steps that medical students can take to advocate for themselves and for their colleagues uh, to you know to affect change within the institution, and then also once you're as an individual applying for a job, to give consideration to what you're walking into and what kind of oversight you will be working under and making sure that it's a, a situation that that is realistic for you and, and comfortable as possible. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Exactly. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. All right, well, now let's move on to our third point, which is location. And I think we touched on this briefly with regard to choosing uh, you know, which medical school that uh, a student would would go to based on the cost of living of the city in which it is at. But what other aspects of location uh, uh, are you thinking about? Yes. So I think the one thing that's very unique to medicine compared to other industries is that the more uh, popular the location, the less they pay. Um, So this has actually been borne out in, um, you know, so places like uh, San Diego, you know, some, you know, maybe um, other places that are really high, um, uh, people are really interested in living there, you know, high demand. Um, the, The jobs are not great. Um, so, you know, if I had friends apply to jobs in the San Diego area, I mean, obviously wonderful weather, you know, great lifestyle, if you, you know, can afford it. Again, it's a very expensive city, but um, but basically, um, you're you're working a lot, you know, um, if like the hospice jobs, you know, you're working almost like a resident. A lot of times, you know, you have to pick up the overnight calls, 28-hour calls, those kind of things. Um, and and the salary range is, is not that great for the cost of living. Uh, in a place like San Diego versus if you live in a place like Milwaukee where I trained or St. Louis um, or something like that, you get really good jobs in terms of, you know, the schedules are, are nice. You know, the pay is very good for the cost of living uh, in those cities. And then you have a lot more free time um, that you can travel to San Diego. And and like, you know, when I, I went to San Diego a few years ago for one of my friend's weddings, you know, she was, you know, having to work, you know, before and after, you know, like these huge amount of shifts, you know, to try to make up her wedding and honeymoon time. And, uh, you know, here I am. I'm lying on the beach because it's a complete vacation for me, right? You know, so um, and so um, so like that's the, it was something to think about for for medical students and residents is is you're going to be spending most of your time at work. Is it really like I talked about before? Is it really worth living in a city like San Diego or you know a city like Miami or something like that because you're going to be spending most of your time at work? And uh, or is it better to be in a place that you already know, the Midwest or you know? or something like that and and um then be able to go to those places for vacation you know when you really are relaxed and and you know not thinking about work and things like that and so um so that's unique to medicine because i've noticed like in law and in other industries um if you're in new york you're going to make more than if you're in milwaukee (laughs) but if in medicine if you're in milwaukee you're making more than you're in new york (laughs) which makes really little sense i don't know why that's 
case, but but you definitely financially, especially when you're looking at attending jobs, um, you're much more likely to pay off your loans faster if you decide to live in a rural area or live in the upper Midwest or something like that for a while. And um, and then maybe once you're out of debt, if you want to move to San Diego, sure, you know, then you're out of debt. It doesn't it doesn't matter as much. But if you're in four hundred thousand dollars of debt, you probably don't want to live on on the coast. Um, you know, you or, you know, the major cities on the coast, because um, you're really going to be struggling financially and not really feeling the, you know, the, the maybe the social life or the social scene that you want, you know, living in those cities, uh, because you're going to be spending so much time at work trying to pay off all the debt and the rent and everything that you're incurring from living in those places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I, I think I think to some degree we we all face that allure at one point or another. Um, you just like when you visit a city that you really like and you do lots of fun things and it is a vacation, it, it, that isn't real life. Like people that actually right. live in that city, you know, they, they might like living there, but they're also working a lot and doing things. And, you know, you might stop and see the sites and really enjoy it. And if they work nearby, they're probably running because they're, they're going exactly from work to home or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. I remember one of, one of my friends from college, he's, he's an attorney in, in the Bay Area, in the San Francisco area. But I remember he told me he had a resident living in his building, a resident physician, and she was paying almost probably two to three thousand dollars a month in rent and she was never there i mean she was always at work right and so i mean that's a lot of money for for a place that you never barely sleep in and you know i mean are you really enjoying the city at that point probably not i mean i i mean i do think of course it's and the other thing to note i'm kind of going back to the advocacy point is um sometimes you don't have as strong advocacy in some of those cities unfortunately um the university of washington and seattle um they have a union, a residence union, but, you know, they've they've had a tough time, you know, trying to get some of the things they need. I mean, their um, their salary is not nearly matching the, the cost of living in the city. And then, um, you know, things like childcare, things like that, they're, I mean, they actually had staged a, a complete, the residents had staged a complete walkout, like walkout of work thing, which is bold. <laughs> That's very, very bold because, you know, residents don't have a lot of power, yeah. um, but, um, but they've felt that they were in such dire straits, you know, that they really, in terms of their own health and safety, that they really needed to do this. And so, um, I mean, I can tell you where I trained in, in Wisconsin, we had a very supportive um, residency structure and, and our, you know, our program director and everybody were very supportive. And and I think, I mean, I'm not saying that it makes a difference to that, but it's, it's something that you have to consider that, you know, the stress, added stress of living in an expensive city, especially you know, when when you may um, not have a program that's as supportive of residents and, you know, just you have to consider those things when you when you're looking at programs and and maybe, um, you know, the University of Washington is making some changes with that. I'm hoping they are. But but definitely, I mean, that was uh, publicly known that that the University of Washington residents kind of walked out one day. And so, I mean, I think that's an issue that, um, you know, they need to address and, and being able to feel like you have the power to do that because you're not drowning it just financially trying to make it through one day or the next i think is important so okay okay really great point so as far as location is concerned uh giving consideration to what 
what you're really going to be spending your time doing uh, at whatever city you happen to be living in and to whatever degree you have choice. And I know that choice isn't always universal. I mean, um, you know, if you, of course, if you apply for a job, you're choosing to go there. But, you know, we have considerations like family and other things uh, that, that affect those. Oh, of course. Right, right. People who have family and the West Coast and things like that, obviously, if they want to move back to closer to their family, it makes complete sense. But, but just consider the jobs. Like I mentioned before, look for, you know, companies or organizations that are, you know, physician run, things like that, I, especially if you're going to move into the private practice setting and you know it's important to go to places that are that are physician run and um and you know that you have a a voice at the table at all times yeah okay great well thanks for sharing uh, on these points and now let's move on to our last one which is seeking financial planning training opportunities what uh what sort of opportunities are you are you thinking about here? Sure. So, yeah, there's um, you really want to try to look at medical focused uh, financial planning tools. So one that's very popular and that I've used is White Coat Investor, um, WCI. Um, so um, I believe it's just whitecoatinvestor.com. But um, but basically it's an emergency. I believe it's uh, James Daly. He's an emergency medicine physician I think in Utah. But uh, he started this website. But now it's, it's huge. There's got multiple contributors and and really just talking a lot about the specific lived experience of physicians and, and medical or financial management for physicians. And I think that's important. Um, and it's a free resource, which is important. Um, the, another thing that I used a lot when I was doing my job hunt is practice link. Um, so that's another one where they have a lot of great articles about contracts and negotiating contracts and things like that. Um, was, uh, we that went well, um, oh, practice. Oh, sorry. PracticeLink.com. PracticeLink.com. Um, okay. Yeah. So that that's a good place to go if you're looking at negotiating contracts and things like that. Um, I would recommend, especially for people uh, looking at private practice positions, to have a lawyer review your contract. Um, my Because of my policy background, and I also had some finance background, I did not have a lawyer go over my contract. And also, I, I ended up in an academic job. So um, I, I just kind of read my own contract and, and made some, you know, small changes based on that. But um, because academic contracts tend to be easier and, um, you know, kind of less um, less legalese in them. But um, but definitely I'd have a lawyer look over a contract. But these kind of places like Wycone Investor and Practice. Um, I think that have been very helpful. And um, and also another thing I'd note is as a resident, there were a lot of financial planning um, meetings and, um, you know, they would just have you come to dinner at some, you know, fancy hotel or fancy restaurant in town and and then, you know, just try to sell you a product. Um, so some, some of these organizations are better than others. What I would say on that front is definitely they should not be charged Charging you as a resident uh, for advice because mm. you don't have money at that point, and so um, so any any financial planning uh, people that come into your you know, residency training program, you know, wanting to sell you a product, I'd be wary uh, of that unless they're really saying, hey, we'll give you advice for free up front. And if you like what we're doing, then when you become an attending and you're settled in to your higher paying job, then maybe we can negotiate some type of agreement for you to be our exclusive, you know, financial planning 
you know, company or whatever, but you know, that's, that's okay. But you know, you need to be in the driver's seat. You don't want to let the financial planner, um, you know, make all the decisions for you. You, you want to be in the driver's seat. You want to, you know, say, Hey, it's going to be on my terms kind of thing. And so, and also another thing to note with that is if it's kind of a local group, you have to consider whether you're going to be staying. Um, I, I knew I was not going to stay where, where I was training and in that state, I knew I was most likely coming back home to Michigan. And so I, uh, wasn't really that interested in, in signing up for anything when I knew I was going to be leaving. So, um, so for people who don't intend to stay in the state where they're training, then it, probably just make sense to use these online free resources and then and then maybe establish with a financial planner when you get to your attending mm-hmm. position so yeah these are great points um i'm uh, i'm very familiar with uh, white coat investor as well um yeah, there's a lot of resources on there to help physicians to do their own research and to make their own decisions to make their own plans um and I, I'm not familiar with PracticeLink.com, but that's a that's great to know about too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I mean, for me, because of what I do, because I am a financial planner, this aspect of of the, this particular step is uh, is especially important to me because I know that there are people in my industry who their compensation structure basically makes them a salesperson, like you mentioned, like selling a product, whether it be insurance or an investment. And uh, yeah, would definitely encourage uh, those who are in school or residents to be wary of this. Um, exactly. Yeah. And another thing is things like life insurance, disability insurance. Um, I do think um, disability insurance is very important for physicians, but you kind of want to look at what product you're getting and, and you know, kind of read the fine lines. I, I did have a disability insurance product that I did buy when I was a resident uh, because we didn't have disability insurance first um, in my residency program. But once I uh, actually hit two years at Michigan. They had a really great disability policy at the university. And, you know, you want to look into that because I was able to cancel my old policy. It was with Northwestern Mutual. But but you you want to kind of keep track of these things because, I mean, I am signing up for a much better policy at the same price now than that I had, um, you know, than I had with Northwestern. So it really kind of depends on where you end up working, and mm-hmm. and you want to look into those things starting out when you when you start your attending position. Um, so life, what is their life insurance policy? What is their disability insurance policy? Um, I, I think that's another thing to note with contracts is don't just look at the salary um, because the salary can belie a lot of other things. Um, obviously in academics the salaries are not going to be quite as high as the private practice sphere, but um, the benefits are are really important. You know what is your retirement uh, package, you know, what is your disability package? What is your life insurance package? Those kind of things, uh, you know, health benefits, obviously, if you have a baby, you know, how much of that is covered, things like that. So, um, and so uh, those kind of things are really important. And you want to kind of look at the full picture. And, um, and again, that kind of puts you more in the driver's seat as well, because if it's just based on salary, I feel like that's something that can change at any moment, you know, and you may kind of feel powerless over that. But if you if you have the other parts of the package, then it puts you more in control. So Okay. And you know, I had heard something too about the 
the importance of looking at the liability insurance in the contract as well. Um, even if you were to leave a particular institution, there has to be some residual liability insurance even after you leave. Yes. Yeah, so they believe they called it tail and uh, yeah. yeah, malpractice tail coverage, basically. Yeah. So you want to see how long that lasts, because basically that means if you got sued, which hopefully, hopefully nobody got sued. But but if you did, how long are you liable in that lawsuit? Are you liable for three years, five years? So you want to look at what the tail coverage is of the place that you're going to be going. Mm-hmm. OK. All right. That's great. Um, yeah, and so. Yeah, and you mentioned like seeking out free advice where it's available. It's great when programs will invite uh, professionals to share information for free. That is really helpful. Um, so of course that is a great option. But for you, I, I I just I need to say this is that me I I know for what what is within my own capabilities. I try to make this sort of advice available to medical students and residents for free. In fact, I'm fairly active on Twitter and I've reached out to a few students and residents just so that if they have questions, because like sometimes you see people expressing lots of frustration and stress about planning and they don't know what to do. And just being able to provide uh, support or find support just to get a few ducks in a row so that, mm-hmm. like you can't you can't eliminate the debt right now it's going to take years uh, but i think the stress comes from looking at the balance going up and up and up and not being able to do anything about it you're not knocking it down yet so whether it's like if you were to if people talk to me on twitter they can ask me anything and i i know it's just it's just talking you know it's just like being able to communicate and get some ideas out um but there's other resources too if if a, if a program offers that that's great and then these online resources is there any other resources that you'd suggest or did that pretty much come? yeah no i think that's good i mean i think twitter uh there's certain parts of twitter that can be very helpful but i mean social media would not be my number one resource because obviously there's a lot of misinformation out there on on social media um but um you know i think uh, it's something I think for me, again, I am more financially savvy because I have some background in this. So I know what's, you know, what's real and what isn't. I, I really would recommend for people who are new to this and don't have any financial background, which I think is the majority of medical students, that really they um, they turn to trusted sources. And so um, and so kind of the ones I mentioned before are trusted sources. Um, I think there's some books out there. Um, so um, like the, the Vanguard founder, he um, it had written some books about investing and things like that, but that's mm-hmm. kind of more higher level. Um, but I think really just looking at, at trusted and really just maybe talk to your attendings, you know, talk to your attendings, you know, younger attendings, especially who are probably going through this. Like I, I'm very happy to talk to medical students or residents I work with, you know, as, as a young attending who is dealing with the same things they're dealing with. So I think that's a really good resource as well is to talk to the settings that you work with when you're a trainee. Um, some of the younger ones who are probably under 40 yeah. um, who are and maybe under 50 that are dealing with this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. No, great points. Yeah. Would, being very cautious about making sure that the source that you're talking to is genuinely putting your best interests at heart. And of course, 
being able to talk to people that you actually know uh, right. is is a great place to start. So, mm-hmm. um, all right, great. Well, that that uh, that wraps up our fourth point. Um, thank you so much for your time and willingness to share your experience uh, on this episode. I'm sure that many listeners who are coming up behind you in the medical field will benefit from what we've discussed today. But there is one other issue that you asked to discuss, right? Yes, yes. Um, so I uh, think uh, thanks again for doing this. I think it's been a really uh, a great uh, podcast and a really great way to get information out. And one thing I want to kind of talk about is is COVID and and the coronavirus. And and I was talking a little about advocacy before. And again, the population of medical students is relatively young. Um, most of them are in their twenties, thirties, and um, and I'm seeing like actually today is the start of Match Week, um, and there's been a lot of talk about match day festivities being canceled. Um, you know, people are not using their, getting their um, match ceremonies and things like that. But some medical students are going out there and kind of playing parties and bar crawls and things like that. And and as a future, med- soon to be, very soon to be future medical professional and an MD, you really need to think, you know, is this in the, in the public's best interest? You know, in order for people to take you seriously when you advocate for yourself, you know, for a medical student that and the cost of tuition and things like that, you need to also put yourself out there as caring for other people. And so, um, so, um, I I really feel like people need to think about what is best for public health right now, and and having you know alternative match ceremonies where you're going to be getting a bunch of people together is is not beneficial for public health at the moment, especially um, if you've been following coronavirus at all. This is going to be really the week that determines the whole rest of the trajectory. <laughs> For, uh, for this virus and, you know, whether we start to level off or whether we start to see um, huge amounts of deaths and huge amounts of um, healthcare system overwhelmed and things like that, like Italy. So, um, so I really think um, medical students uh, need to think about, you know, what is in the best interest of, of their patients and advocate for their patients as well as for themselves. And so what you do this week will, will make a difference for that. So. Okay. So uh, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, we. It's always good to be self-sacrificing and considering how we can support others, but especially now, there's a as a very this is a very serious situation. So it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great thoughts. Thank you for sharing that. Um, if uh, if you liked this episode. If you found it helpful, please share it with others. If there's something that you'd like to hear us talk about in future episodes, please get in touch. Now, next month, April, the first Tuesday on April 7th, our next episode will continue this discussion of student loans, what emotions can trap us into making bad decisions and establishing bad habits, and we'll discuss this along with practical steps that we can take. Talk to you soon, and thanks again, Somia, for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much. Everyone needs a financial plan. Money Mediator, that's the show. Tyler Olson, that's me. Follow me on Twitter at Olson Planner. That's at O-L-S-O-N-P-L-A-N-N-E-R. Visit my website, olsonconsultingmi.com. If you want to talk more about any points that we discussed today, please get in touch. 
The show is Money Mediator. New episodes the first Tuesday of every month. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.